0: and welcome to Way2Twog's Bagpipe and History podcast. Uh, This week's episode, all the tunes are somewhat uh, tangentially or directly related to the Napoleonic Wars or um, bagpipers from the fur trade who I think might have participated in the Napoleonic Wars uh, directly. Uh, So uh, in that sense, that's our justification for opening up with um, a tune that I wrote about Graham Portage Uh, This tune is called Grand Portage Tribal Chairwoman Beth Drost. Uh, A good friend of mine uh, was elected to be the first female tribal chairman for the band there in Grand Portage, and uh, she had been my boss uh, for a good several years at the National Monument, and uh, I wasn't working there anymore when she got, uh, when she won the election to be the trouble chairwoman for, um, for a good bit of a stressful time, uh, if you can imagine jumping into a leadership position, uh, just in time for the coronavirus and everything else. Um, but I was able to, uh, visit the res, uh, I was able to visit the res when, you know, shortly after she had been elected. And as soon as I got onto the reservation, it just made me so happy. And, uh, the majority of that tune just kind of jumped into my head and, kind of sang it all the way, um, sang it all the way up to Grand Portage and and made some tweaks to it and played it. And it was funny, you know, as as Beth became incredibly busy as Tribal Chairwoman, uh, I didn't really get a chance to visit with her much, but uh, the Tribal Chair's office was like right overlooking the historic site uh, that I used to work at and I was up there volunteering at. And so she could hear me every time I was playing. And so finally, as it became, as it started to feel less and less likely that we'd get to connect, I I sent her a Facebook message saying, okay, I'm going to play a tune I wrote for you at such and such a time, so open your window. Um, Anyway, it was cool. Um, Yeah, it felt great to be kind of home there. The tune is, uh, it borrows from Dugan Maclean's uh, Caledonia a bit a bit. Uh, interestingly, Doogie McLean came to Grand Portage and saw my bagpipes, uh, sitting there on Alexander McKenzie's bed and, and apparently said, Oh, you got a piper. Where is he? And I was at lunch. And so I missed out on meeting Doogie McLean because I was taking a lunch break, uh, which feels pretty stupid. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, Oh, I love Caledonia. And you know, it seems like Caledonia is such a great song about, uh, like a hometown. And in a sense, you know, Scotland is, uh, in terms of two places that feel the most like home to me that I don't really have a right to claim as home. Uh, they are Grand Portage and many little pockets of, um, Scotland. So it seemed fitting to, uh, to link the tunes together and that tune for Beth. And so, uh, the reason, uh, so it's a, it's a, Original composition, which was what this podcast was supposed to be, was original compositions and historical tunes. But it also fit the theme. Uh, So, like I said, we're going Napoleonic tunes. So what we are going to listen to, we've already had uh, Grand Portage Tribal Chairwoman, Beth Drost, uh, our opening tune. Uh, The next thing, I think we're going to have a couple different versions of The Downfall of Paris, uh, which was sort of the inspiration for this episode. Uh, then we're going to have The Basket of Oysters by O'Farrell. Uh, then we're going to have uh, a couple... Well, then we're going to have The Battle of Waterloo, which I don't know what, if it actually dates back to... Um, I don't think it actually dates back to the early 19th century, but it is in um, it is in O'Neill's Irish music uh, collection from 1900 or so when that was published, the big 1850 thing, um, as a different tune. So we're going to have battle of waterloo and highland pipes and then i'm going to play uh, bonaparte crossing the rhine which is what it is in kind of the irish the old irish tune books and then uh we're going to play some highland pipe tunes that uh well one highland pipe tune that shows up in donald Macdonald and angus MacKay and a bunch of other places uh called up and roar and willie which supposedly was played um at where was it played oh this is embarrassing should have this already uh supposedly played um by a piper after being wounded at vimiero in 1808 uh i was gonna play johnny cope uh i don't know i don't know if i've put johnny cope on the podcast yet uh johnny cope's clearly gonna get its own episode uh i was i was reading yeah so johnny cope is another tune that was supposedly played uh during the napoleonic war uh napoleonic wars by bagpipers, but That is a tricky tune, looking at some of the older settings uh, and looking at some of the newer settings, too. So we're going to have to spend more time with that. Anyway, I think that's all of it. Up and Roam Willie, doing a couple versions of that. Donald MacDonald has two different settings of it. Uh, Angus Mackay has a different setting of it. And I've kind of wound up doing my own thing, predictably. So we're going to do that. Uh, And I'm also going to play another Donald MacDonald tune the Morris Lover, which I'm not sure if it has anything to do with Napoleonic War, but I always play Up and Willie in that as part of a set. So that's what we're gonna have. Oof, uh, that's a lot of tunes. I feel like I might be mistaken or forgetting something. Hmm, not sure. Okay, so the couple couple things also right off the bat. Uh, looking at the statistics of the podcast I am just blown away and so very grateful to have all of you wonderful listeners Uh, a couple people have reached out and suggested that I host the podcast on iTunes so that it's easier to find and download uh it's been there for a decade (laughs) um but I realized that the way that this... Uh, but I don't mention that necessarily. And I, I, it didn't really strike me. Like, I don't... Like, occasionally I will listen to a podcast on an uh, internet browser. Um, if I'm, like, doing something else. But almost... That basically never happens. Uh, and so I was kind of startled looking through the stats that... Uh, yeah, like, our last episode... Barely anyone listened to the... Well... Yeah, more than... Like, more than half... Yeah, well over half of the listeners... We had a lot of downloads last week. 155 downloads. And, uh... Yeah, well over half are on internet browsers. Uh, Which is fine. If you want to listen to the podcast that way, that's great. I don't... You know, I don't fault anybody for that. But, uh... If you, like the handful of other folks that have said, Hey, put your thing on iTunes. We're on iTunes. Go check it out. So, um... Quit listening. Quit listening to. Quit listening to the episode on the browser if you're listening to it now, and just go over to. We're on Spotify, uh, or I'm on on Spotify. I'm on um, Apple iTunes. I can see people are listening on um, Pocket, Pocket Casts, and Podcast Addict, and like. There's a couple other servers. Got a couple iHeart Media listeners. Um, So you can find me. You can find the podcast on all kinds of things. So. Uh, yeah, if you are thinking, man, I really wish you had these things on on a podcast catcher, I'm probably already there. Uh, and if I'm not, and if you if you use a podcast listener and I'm not on that, send me an email. I'd love to get the show on all the platforms, so it's easier for you to listen uh, in your preferred medium. So and along those same lines, uh, all of my podcast reviews are from when <laughs> I did this show when it was mostly me. kind of drunkenly rambling uh, and poorly describing whiskey. So I would really appreciate it if uh, somebody went and left a new review when you're going and subscribing to Way to Talks Bay Pipe History Podcast. Uh, If you want to just go and leave a review, supposedly that makes it uh, a little bit easier for us to, for me to be picked up by other folks. Kind of like to the way the show has been working lately is I spent a lot of time the day that it's done going around and publishing it. Yeah, I have two reviews. Um, from 2012 and 2006. 2006! That's how old this show is! Oh my god. I mean, obviously it's not. The show's really radically changed lately. Um, anyway. Check it out on your more preferred uh, listening platform. Leave us a review if you like. And also, like... Um, Like I said, I'd I'd love to hear from from y'all more. Uh, And thank you for the the handful of people that have reached out. I I kept thinking that I would do some kind of interactive thing where I would read um, people's emails or comments. But so far, all of my interactions with listeners have been... Well, they've just not really been the type of thing to share. Like, they're not a question. They're not a... You know, it's just... um, like they're they're really great, <laughs> like they uh, the handful of conversations I've had with people have uh, been what I needed to keep going and feel like this wasn't uh, a foolish endeavor. Um, but they also just don't feel like a user mail um, kind of thing to me. So I guess that's just that's probably not going to happen. But um, I would love to hear from from y'all. So you can send me an email way at gmail dot um, or through the podcast host site, ray 2 com, probably. Um, but I'm curious, like what are the other big podcasts y'all are listening to? Um, I've been, I've been thinking about doing a, uh, Patreon, especially as I'm <laughs> like all these various, uh, yeah, I, I, I would love an equipment upgrade. Uh, I'd love a, a, a beer fund or a whiskey fund. That'd be pretty good. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just thinking about doing that. I hadn't, I wasn't sure if I was going to do it in the past. Um, I've, last time I tried to set it up, like it, it was clearly not worth it, but I don't know. I feel better about the show now. It's been going, um, it's been going pretty steady. I feel like it's going to go steady. And the main thing is that I've kept intending to, uh, put together an episode that was just the tunes that I was playing rather than me talking. Uh, and that's going to be quite a lot of work at this point. So, uh, I think that's going to be, I'm thinking about having a Patreon and kind of having that be, uh, having those audio only or the music only, uh, episodes as the Patreon feed. So at least there's something there, uh, and, to kind of <laughs> make it worth my while, I guess. And also it's going to wind up being several albums worth of music, I think. So that's sort of like buying an album, right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, let me know what you think. If you think, oh, for the love of Pete, don't do another thing where somebody's asking me for money uh, or whatever. Uh, love to hear your thoughts. Um, yeah, I've been thinking that the Patreon posts would be the music-only epi- postings and then maybe like one random thing a year. But I'm just concerned. You know, I'm I'm a PhD student and at some point I'm going to need to probably slow down these episodes uh, especially as the the semester kicks off again probably have to go to like once every two weeks but the idea of doing that doesn't make me happy so I think it'll probably just wind up being shorter episodes or um, less concerned about theme uh, anyway let me know what you think way2twog at gmail.com uh, all of those have double vowel, or. It's W-E-T-O-O-T-W-A-A-G at gmail.com. But mostly, you know, thanks for for listening. And actually, like I said, this episode is largely thanks to uh, an Instagram uh, friend kind of requesting a tune. Uh, He asked me to play Downfall of Paris like Mick O'Brien does on Ellen Pipes. And uh, I didn't know that Mick O'Brien played Downfall of Paris. Uh, I had always listened to Mikey Smith's version and then... Um, yeah, Mikey Smith's version first. And and uh, Chris McMullen has a pretty nice and clean recording on his album. Uh, clearly kind of in- inspired or, or playing similar to how Mikey Smith does it. Uh, anyway, so the idea of playing Downfall of Paris after... You know, watching a grainy YouTube video of Mikey Smith just slaying it over and over again uh, was a thing that that seemed intimidating, and then finding out that Mick O'Brien also did an incredible rendition, uh, just slow and lovely, uh, I <laughs> was like, well, I don't know. But it's an O'Farrell, and it's a popular tune uh, from the past, and I had been I've been trying to play it kind of off and on for a year or two now, and uh, I don't know. I'm glad I'm glad that Drew asked for it and uh it's a really fun tune to play it turns out like the repeats the repeats and downfall of paris can get a little bit tedious but uh it's also like they're just begging to be regulated all over the place uh really really lends itself to that but um yeah, good tune, good historic tune. Uh I'm gonna play first the setting closest to the one that like Mikey Smith and Mick O'Brien do. Uh and then we'll play the O'Farrell setting cause they are considerably different. Uh I think the the one out of like O'Neill has it in the same setting, similar setting to how uh Mikey Smith and O'Brien do it. And uh apologies if I'm getting any of those names wrong. Um yeah, that version is just a lot more friendly to regulators. O'Farrell's version, like I'm sure you could do some cool regulator stuff with it, but it's a lot less a lot less conventional. So let's start off with my take on Downfall of Paris. Uh, probably how you've most likely already heard it kind of in that setting. But lovely tune. And uh because it's an O'Farrell, I'm pretty confident that it is tied to the Napoleonic Wars and kind of doing some poking around it. It seems like that that seems to be the case. So Good old tune, Uh, here we go, Downfall of Paris. Or the French Revolution, anyway. I don't know... Yeah, that feels like a tune I'm going to just keep on playing. I think, I wonder how many people adjust those repeats uh, when you're playing around. I I don't know. Doing uh, historic music sets. I don't know. I've never tried to really, like when I'm, generally when I'm giving a music program uh, back in the olden days when people would gather for things, It was always uh, like, oh, there's a bagpiper, let's go listen to that. And I was maybe a little too self-conscious about how long I was making people listen to a tune. So I was inclined to shorten it up. It's been interesting doing this podcast and seeing just how short all the tunes that I play at the speed I was playing really are. And how often I would make people sit and listen to only like a minute or two minutes of a tune. Not even two minutes, like a minute. I bet during my bagpipe programs mostly it was a minute. Um... I don't know, uh, with a couple exceptions. Oftentimes, if I had a music program going good, I would I would play a P-Brock, but I'd play just part of it and, and talk about it. Or if I played more than one part about it. If I played more than one part, I would stop and, and talk about it. Anyway, um, so that's Downfall of Paris. And like I said, it's in O'Farrell too. You'll hear the setting is quite different. So here is O'Farrell's setting for The Fall of Paris. Clearly the same tune. Uh, I'm not sure... When the switch happened, uh, O'Neill's, is, uh, O'Neill's collection is published in the very early 20th century, I think 1904 or something like that. Um, but yeah, first decade of 20th century anyway. Uh, so sometime between the first decade of the 19th century and the first decade of the 20th century, it switched if it hadn't already been played at a n- number of options and keys. Uh, anyway, so here is O'Farrell's setting for the fall of Paris. yeah i don't know which one's better um i mean obviously i'm gonna play the o'farrell one more often um but i think it's more fun to play the more common one it's certainly easier for my brain to think about what to do with the regulators on it anyway um anyway so yeah thanks again drew for requesting that tune and uh thank you guys thank you all for listening um for the different settings we're gonna do so so yeah, the thinking about <laughs> using Drew's request as like a kickoff to doing Napoleonic tunes, uh, I kind of realized uh, that the only tune I, I could think of right away to play other than you know the downfall of Paris was Battle of Waterloo. And I wasn't sure how historic that was because I hadn't seen it in O'Farrell or Angus Mackay or Donald MacDonald. But it's just a lovely tune. It's it's easily one of my favorite marches. Um, and it's one that I played quite a lot at Grand Portage. So uh, probably there's a good chance that many of you, if you're listening to this podcast, are familiar with the Waterloo bagpipes. Uh, there's an old set of pipes uh, that were supposedly played by a Mackay Piper on the battle of water at the battlefield of Waterloo and then played by either another or the same Mackay Piper, uh, when King George the fourth came through Edinburgh in 1822, wearing a kilt with tights underneath it and kind of really jump-starting the whole obsession with tartan and kilts and things, uh, in England, uh, and Scotland again, honestly, uh, to a certain extent, uh, those pipes, are attributed to a Mackay Piper, but they're they're actually attributed to a George Mackay uh, Piper, uh, which I thought was a detail I had invented until going to the Piping Center in Glasgow and seeing the, the nameplate. So at some point I saw Hugh Cheap write about it someplace and it said George Mackay. Um, but mostly it's just attributed they're just called Waterloo pipes or uh, sometimes Mackay pipes, but uh, yeah. If you go look at the museum several years ago, anyway, i mentioned George. And uh, these are the same pipes that Julian Goodacre reproduces. These are the same pipes that look like a dead ringer for Joseph McDonald's. Um, yeah, like for Joseph McDonald's pipes. Just with these giant, giant chalice-top drones. And it's a set of pipes that I had reproduced, sort of. I couldn't afford a Julian Goodacre set, and we were shooting a film at Grand Portage and uh, I wanted to have a historic-looking set of pipes rather than my pretty fancy McCallums with silver and ivory on them. And so I, I reached out to a bunch of pipe makers. Oy, this is a decade and a bit ago at this point, point. and Kintail was still making pipes, and unbeknownst to me at the time, Kintail obviously already made chalice-topped uh, pipes or drones, and so they were willing to work with me to make some slight adjustments to make them look a little bit more like uh, the Mackay pipes from Waterloo. And those are the pipes that I've mostly played um, for quite some, for, for like, well, the rest of my time at Grand Portage. My McCallum pipes pretty much fell into disuse until uh, the quarantine happened. And now probably I'm definitely playing the McCallums more. But, um, but anyway, so the reason that George Mackay matters to me is the name of the bagpiper uh, that worked for the Northwest Company uh, was George Mackay. And we don't know a heck of a lot about him. Um, We do get some details, though, and the details that I have found about George Mackay make, like, Mackay is a common enough name in Scotland, a common enough name uh, in Canada... Uh, it's such a common name in Canada that the best account we have of George Mackay as a bagpiper was written by another Mackay who worked for a competing fur trading company. Um, so, a guy named George, uh, John Mackay uh, writes at Portage Dile, which is a trading post right on the uh, Winnipeg River, so between Lake of the Woods and Lake Winnipeg. And John Mackay works for the Hudson's Bay Company. He's an interesting character in his own right, but uh, not a bagpiper, so I won't talk about him too much. But uh, basically, he he recounts that as these brigades of canoes were heading out west, uh, one of John Mackay's job was, you know, they were the Hudson's Bay Company had a sen- intentionally set up this post right along this trade route that the competing fur trading company, Northwest Company, was using, so that he could kind of keep tabs on people. And uh, so John Mackay is kind of keeping pretty detailed notes about all the uh, Canadians or the Northwest Company guys and where they're going. And in 1794, in his 1794 journal uh, in the summertime, he says, uh, The two Mr. Mackays set off after entertaining us with the bagpipes all night. This George Mackay was counted one of the first performers of that instrument in Scotland. Mr. McTavish. Simon McTavish, the owner of the Northwest Company. Gave him him 50 pounds per annum and a free passage to Canada for the purpose of playing to the Inland Gentleman at Grand Portage while they stay at the post, uh, which is never above six weeks. Uh, But the, the company, finding him a man of abilities, sent him Inland Master with additional wages. So basically we find out that George Mackay was hired to come over and play bagpipes, and since most pipers were educated... Uh, to some extent, when the fur traders found out that he could read write, and do math, he got shipped off to manage, uh, or help be a clerk at a fur post on the Red River, which is kind of presently the border between North Dakota, Minnesota, and flows up, flows north up into Lake Winnipeg, um... Yeah, so interesting. Interesting character. The first reference we get to George Mackay is this one in 1794, but he crops up in other people's journals. Uh, he writes letters with another um, Scott. That well, Scott, Scottish Canadian um, Archibald Macleod had like these really fancy stamps made up with boats on them that said Macleod of Lewis on them. But I, I think he was actually born in Canada. Could be wrong about that. I know Simon Fraser was born in Canada, and he's the one that kind of gives the he's the one that decides that um british columbia looks like scotland so (laughs) cause it the is it the caledonian district i think he calls bc and all that even though he had never been to scotland uh anyway so um that was a bit of a ramble there uh george Mackay shows up in other people's journals mostly just commenting that he's there traveling with um charles chaboyer or exchanging letters with uh, archibald mower Macleod, Uh, but nobody mentions he's a bagpiper which to me always seemed like oh maybe bagpipes are so common um that they don't really care Um, but there's some details in john Mackay's account of the piper that always stuck out to me as interesting and that kind of added credibility to the waterloo pipes being played by a fur trader um so george Mackay, sorry for hitting the microphone stand something i can replace when we get a patreon account um so george mckay t- to work as a fur trader <laughs> and you, as a clerk he generally signed pretty long contracts uh wasn't unheard of due to do like the seven-year apprenticeship and george Mackay's time in the fur trade sort of winds up he i, I have a hard time finding references to him around that seven-year mark uh, and so I think he probably went back uh, and this is not all that atypical for, uh, clerks and things working for the Northwest company to kind of work for the company full of ambition and, and hope that that would translate to, you know, being a millionaire. But if your name wasn't McTavish or you weren't descendant of kind of the Frasers around, um, Stratherrick or Loch Ness it just probably wasn't going to happen so nepotism ruled uh, in the Northwest Company so it was hard for people to move up there were Mackays uh, in the shareholding structure but George was not one of them anyway so I think it is conceivable that George returned to Scotland and uh, was there and wound up at Waterloo during the Napoleonic Wars uh, he wouldn't have been too terribly old if he was a young man to start um, the time that George Mackay shows up in the interior is also kind of gels with some things we know about Simon McTavish's behavior. Uh, he had Simon McTavish as the chief shareholder of the fur trading company spent a lot of time in London. And when he was in London, he reached out to, you know, technically the chief of, of clan McTavish, trying to get his coat of, like trying to figure out what coat of arms he could put on his coach. There's kind of a weird series of letters between Simon McTavish and Lachlan McTavish um that I would read here, but I'm a little worried that they aren't real. They are I have them uh in quote forms from some genealogists, but they're supposedly in the Hudson's Bay Company archives in Simon McTavish's personal correspondence. I've gone and looked through that collection and they aren't in there, which makes me a little nervous that these documents might have been fabricated to there's kind of a weird feud happening in the Clan McTavish Society. Um but Anyway, I think the letters are probably accurate um, because it kind of gels with George Mackay showing up when he does. That It's possible that George Mackay, you know, came to Simon McTavish through some connection with Lachlan. Um, It's also possible Mackay, there was plenty of Mackays that served in Simon McTavish's dad's regiment in the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War. Don't quite know where Mackay comes from. But if we look at John Mackay's account again, so either George Mackay is a blowhard, uh, or boasting right here, uh, George, where, you know, the reporter says that George Mackay was counted one of the first performers in that instrument in Scotland. So something is, that's interesting to me. So 1794 is when this account is being made, uh, George Mackay being counted as one of the first performers that instrument. Well, you know there are competitions already happening uh, by 1794 but if you look if you read john gibson's book on traditional gaelic uh, highland piping you really get the sense that a lot of kind of old school pipers and piping schools hated the competitions and did not like the kind of standardized nature and kind of just what it was doing to the music of things and So it's conceivable to me that George Mackay could have been a really good piper in the 1790s and not shown up on those competition roles, because he's not. He's not on, he's never, he never wins. Angus Mackay has a a long history of listing the the winners of various categories. And the first George Mackay shows up in like the 1830s, and he wins not for being a good piper, but for being the best dressed in the manner of the country. Uh, So I don't think... I don't think our george Mackay competed he could have totally just been boasting but let's say he's not let's say he's actually a really good piper that has somehow slipped through the cracks of kind of legendary pipers that we know about um the bagpipes themselves kind of make that seem feasible uh the first award you know in 1783 the award for being the best piper was already a set of bagpipes that kind of looked like what we play today. Um, you know, it's made out of blackwood with some combing and ivory on it. And you know, the, the waterloo pipes are the opposite of that. The waterloo pipes are, you know, made out of local woods with horn mounts, and they're that older style of bagpipe with chalice top drones rather than hammer top drones. And it's a bit of a stretch maybe to assume that, um, old school pipers that didn't think the competitions were worth competing in might also have not wanted to mess with this newfangled hardwood, um, and ivory, but it's conceivable to me that that, that is the case. So anyway, I've, you know, it's one way or the other, it was clear to me that the, the Waterloo pipes were, a good representation of what some if not many bagpipes looked like in 1790s and the fact that they're attributed to a piper of the same name and i can't prove that george Mackay wasn't at waterloo uh in 1814 um 1814 1815 whenever waterloo happened oof boy for a napoleonic episode should have looked that one up um I mentioned I'm not a big fan of war history. Um, anyway, so that's so that's always been my that's been my thoughts on um, George Mackay, and that's sort of my that's that was my intro into historic piping was trying to come up with a repertoire that George Mackay might have had when he was playing a grand portage, and so yeah, that's that's where we are. So that generally meant a lot of Donald Macdonald tunes. Uh, And an occasional melody that Joseph Wrightson talked about um, being really common on bagpipes like Flowers of the Forest or Hey Tutti Tutte or anything from Robert Burns uh, and that sort of thing. So trying to figure out, trying to recreate the 1790s bagpiper repertoire is where my head was at the first several years of giving historical music programs. But that is how it ties us to Napoleonic Wars and why I'm talking about George Mackay for so long. And so let's go on to the tune I used to play uh, for public gatherings at Grand Portage when I was looking for an excuse to talk about George Mackay. Oh my goodness, this is going to be a long episode. Uh, Here is the Battle of Waterloo. So this tune... um, I'll play the older setting of it on Irish pipes afterwards. Um, But this tune is attributed to Donald MacLeod. Donald MacLeod says that he got it from an older pipe major. That's just an old tune. There's some other kind of stories about Donald MacLeod getting it from a fiddler, which is possible. Uh, Like I said, I have a setting that's from 1900 that calls it uh, Bonaparte crosses the Rhine. But uh, it is a cracking good tune on Highland Pipe. So here is the Battle of Waterloo. Cool tune, uh, a tune is first introduced to me by an old pipe mate friend uh, from our band in Bemidji uh, named John Bender. He was just a cool character, and uh, I remember I was just looking through moving, still moving and unpacking things, and I printed off a copy of uh, Gordon Duncan Tude Book for my buddy Brian up there at the podcast or up there at the pipe band. and I <laughs> I, I, was, I had a lot of free time uh, when I was an undergrad, apparently, and I just pasted in the sheet music to Skyboat Song and titled it John Bender's Tasty Groove. Uh, it was very clever and creative in college. Uh, anyway, good tune. Like I said, Donald McLeod, uh, who I think I'm going to wind up doing an episode on, uh, he kind of slipped into my Orkney uh, Orkney—he has a couple tunes about Orkney stuff. Um, so if I ever get that Orkney episode done, we're definitely gonna have to talk about some Donald MacLeod stuff, even though he's from Lewis. Um, anyway, so Battle of Waterloo, awesome march. Uh, like I said though, older tune. Uh, most tunes are written shortly after the thing happened, but uh, obviously, <laughs> like that certainly isn't the case with Jacobite tunes and uh, such a big thing as, as, Waterloo. I could see that being a little bit later, but we do have this older tune, um, by at least half a century, I'd guess, from when Donald Macleod writes it down for the Cabra book and with the, is it Seaforce? Queen's Own Highlanders, uh, the Cabra book it is where Donald McLeod writes it down for the first time, I think. Anyway, older setting in O'Neill's book, different title, um, it's called bonaparte crosses the rhine and it's a pretty lovely tune i I think i might i don't know i love it it's a good tune it works really good on ellen pipes and it works really good on highland pipes so here's bonaparte crossing the rhine Yeah, it's a good, it's a good tune. It's a really good setting for inland pipes. Uh, I'm gonna do this tune is. Well, should we do this one first? Boy, should have thought this out sooner. Um, let's do the basket of oysters. So, this is a tune from O'Farrell, and uh, I don't know if it has any direct napoleonic war connections but O'Farrell published his first collection during the napoleonic wars so it's clearly a tune that existed at the time and uh while drew's suggestion of playing the downfall of paris made me think huh i could do a napoleonic thing uh, before i realized just how many tunes i was going to have i was watching um kind of old documentary uh it's on amazon prime now on the, the tour of the uh islands the islands of scotland and uh, he just—he has an oyster and talks about Napoleon's whole thing about eating oysters before battle. I'm not sure if that myth has been busted or anything. So I feel goofy repeating it here, but uh, yeah, supposedly it—it sounds like an English propaganda thing that Napoleon ate oysters before battle so that he would use the you know vigors of the aphrodisiac nature on the battlefield uh, of oysters uh but it it worked for me for thinking about Simon McTavish to Simon McTavish one of the few like humanizing quotes of him it's it's sort of been written about like oh man he's like a regular guy uh is a little bit creepy and like hasn't aged well uh the historians take but he wrote about uh, at some point he wrote in a letter to someone that there's the best things in life are good oysters good wine and young girls um And it seemed real funny, but he married a teenager when he was in his 40s, Um, so I don't know. But, you know, 19th century is weird. It's a weird time, and, oh, women just were in such a bad position, and children too. Um, Anyway, so here's the basket of oysters. It is a high tune, like, starts way up top and stays up top. Uh, even has a note that i wasn't sure my chanter could play i can't play it in tune that uh that high c um, but still a good tune so here's the basket of oysters a good tune. I'm a little fearful this podcast is going to go over an hour. Um, but hey, I got enough tunes as if I wasn't going to talk much and then I wound up talking about a bunch of things. Uh, so let's go back to a tune that is pretty surely played at the and uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. So this is a tune called Up and Roram Willie, uh, Roarum, Warum, Warum, Up and Roram Willy I don't know. Uh, warum I wrote it down in the show notes how it's spelled uh, I saw a thing how um, other versions of this tune had tried to anglicize it to make it understandable for English speakers uh, so up and war um a willy is how it's written about written out in several things but they changed it to warnum willy apparently that was more understandable I'm not sure if that's actually a good translation of the Scots or Gaelic or what it is but this is a tune uh, supposedly played uh, during a Napoleonic battle. It said. I went hunting. I ordered a book uh, today, so it's clearly not going to be here in time for the podcast. But we'll look at it for future episodes, maybe. Um, but yeah, from this book, uh, "The Piper in Peace and War." Uh, they mentioned that up and warm willie was played at Vimiero in 1808 so so yeah there's a bunch of different versions of this tune i've i've played it for years based loosely on a double McDonald setting i'm just going to play you a little clip here uh, of my kind of first couple of takes at angus mackay's setting which is considerably different and then i'll I'll talk about the differences so here is angus mackay's setting for up and a war what is he? How does he spell it? Angks says up and war on willy. So here we go. <laughs> a cool tune. Uh, like I said, there are many different settings of it. So, interestingly, Donald MacDonald has it in his first Peebock Tutor, and it's sort of the version that I base mine on. It's a common time. Uh, I'll play through it kind of as close to how he writes it as I can sight read. Like I said, I've, I've changed it. Um, when I The last clip I'm going to play will be the version that I play of it now. But here's the older setting in Donald MacDonald's uh, 1820... Manuscript or book of Up and Warm Willie. <laughs> there's like these long runs with no gracing at all. interesting um but then the collection of dance tunes dress bays and reels and all that has a setting for it it's also donald mcdonald this one's in cut time just make my image a little bit bigger of it if i can do that even sort of and so yeah a little bit different so here's his setting when it's in cut time Yeah, I'm really surprised at those long runs, but I do love the I love that those B strikes down to the G. Anyway, so different different settings. Um, same tune. The the way that I wound up playing it, it was mostly like I, I didn't notice that it was in the later setting until today. Um so I always used the the first setting when I played you on channel here there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's still that that long run until you get to the A's uh, at the end of that. That run doesn't have any gracing at all. Um, and Angus MacKay's, if you didn't notice, is just full of all kinds of over-the-top embellishments. I'm starting to wonder could Angus MacKay even play all these things. I think he might have been just a little over the top. Um, or maybe some of the some of the way some of the ways that Angus MacKay writes tunes makes me think that the whole like a whole, a whole tune might just be a Lua kind of, like he might just be one big long. Like there's just so much, there's so much embellishment that if you actually <laughs> count it out, it doesn't, I don't, I don't know that it would work. Um, which brings me up to, I'm not sure if I said at the beginning that we were going to play Over the Hills and Far Away, but this podcast is clearly long enough and uh, my setting of over the hills and far away from makai is it's not great and i kind of want to look into over the hills and far away a little bit more so we'll do that on a different episode and so we will end today's show by saying once again if you haven't yet this is your reminder go to your preferred podcast listening um venture and click subscribe uh, i would love if everybody subscribed like if I got a hundred downloads on the first day, uh, without me having to promote it all over the place, cause I'm starting to feel like I'm bothering people, um, by posting into various, uh, bagpipe Facebook groups and things or Facebook bagpipe groups and Reddit and Twitter and Bob Dunsire. Um, so yeah, if, uh, if you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or uh, Spotify, I'm not sure if I'm on Stitcher. I didn't put anything on iHeartMedia, and people are listening through iHeartMedia, so maybe it's on Stitcher. Uh, but check those things out. Leave us a review. Uh, send me an email uh, What you're th- if you think a Patreon's a good idea, um, or if you think it's crazy and why. Uh, and if you, listened to, if you listen to podcasts on a catcher that I'm not on, let me know what it is so I can try to get on there so it's easier for you. So please subscribe, and thanks for listening. Uh, this episode has just crossed an hour. I won't do that to you again. Um, yeah, just apparently I had a lot to talk about. So we're going to go out with a set that I played as George Mackay for my George Mackay music programs at Grand Portage. These are two tunes from uh, his older collection, so the 1820s. So likely, and again, just to refresh your memory, this 1820 Donald MacDonald manuscript or book uh it's about p but he includes a bunch of dance tunes right away at the beginning uh and he includes those so because they're such common tunes and have been played for so long that everyone knows what they are so they can understand his notation system which is pretty much how we notate bagpipe music today Uh, i'm sure there's technically some differences but i am the bagpiper whose teacher told them to ignore what a treble clef was that i didn't need to know about that because i was a bagpiper so reading music ain't my strong suit Anyway, so this is uh, the Morris Lover, which I kind of turn into a slow tune, and then into my version of Up and Warm a Willie again. Thanks for listening. Next week we'll probably hear some more tunes. That's how this works. Uh, Cheers, everybody.